Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Julie Rouse is the owner of the Healthy Mind and Soul and a mental health occupational therapist. Growing up in Ballarat with a very strong work ethic which didn't cover mental health, Dr. Julie Rouse came into her current practice after a burnout moment saw her questioning her career path and searching for answers when she had some unexplained health issues. A passionate advocate for a holistic approach to mental health with occupational therapy, treatment and flexible approaches, Dr. Rouse joins us for today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Julie Rouse. Julie Rouse, thanks so much for spending some time with me and having a chat to me and sharing a story with our listeners. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks, Sam. So, Julie, tell me about, give our listeners a bit of context to your backstory and where you grew up and what it was like. Bit of backstory, sure. So whilst I, I wasn't born on a farm, I was born in Melbourne, but I was raised from two years of age in Ballarat in Victoria. And my extended family lived on farms up through the Stall Wimmera area. So very much grew up. So whilst I can manage in the city just fine, I can round up a herd of sheep, no problem. Good. That's a good skill, herding sheep. It's a bit of simple pleasures. It's my family's sheep farmers as well. But tell me what it was like growing up in Ballarat. Was it, was it a rural? Was there a good sense of community? Was it everyone looking after each other? Was it um, pretty inclusive? Was it challenging? I guess for me, thinking about my childhood, uh, we're a, we were a regional town, but very much country-minded, so felt like everybody knew everybody else's business. My family went into business, and so my dad was bought and ran businesses. So from an early age, I understood the importance of running a business. I was very much taught about hard work and work ethic, and that was a really big part of growing up was, you know, good days pay for a good day's work. But one of the things though I wasn't taught so much about was the importance of looking after myself or mental health. That was not part of my childhood. It was very much about you worked hard, you were stoic. Put up with whatever you get. Absolutely. Yeah, push through it. For sure. Did you when you when you grew up, was mental health with mental health and well being, was that something that was just came naturally as an area of interest to you, or was it something that was thrust upon you due to an experience or how did it come? Very much thrust upon me. So I was always very academically minded. So loved school, loved science and was hoping to go into the medical field of some description. So health was always of interest, but very much wanted to go into physiotherapy. My ATAR was just not enough 
And so I headed off into the School of Occupational, very happy to be there, but always figured I'd go into neuroscience or an area into physical health. Back then, though, it was compulsory that you had to do a mental health placement as well. So you had to learn mental health as well as physical health. I figured that was okay. That didn't mean I had to work there. Tick the box. Tick the box. All good. So back then in third year, you did two long placements. They were each nine weeks. My first one was my mental health placement and my second one was neuroscience, so my my physical rehab placement. I thought, that's great. I'll get to get mental health out of the way and then I can do my favourite thing. So I headed off to a psychiatric institution. So it was Lakeside, which is now closed. It was a really big psychiatric institution. And I discovered that I did really well there. I related to, to people. I was able to help people to participate and engage in life. I got really, really good feedback from my supervisors and I just really loved my placement. So I headed off to my next placement thinking, wow, if I did so well in my mental health placement, this next one's going to be off the charts. I hated it. (laughs) Hated it with a passion. I know. So in my fourth year, I changed my electives and I majored in mental health (laughs) instead of physical. And I guess you could say the rest is history. I've worked in mental health for the last 24 years since graduating from uni. So sliding doors moment could have been physiotherapy. Yes, uh, yes. Almost. I, I could have been in a completely different place. Mm. Never know, do you? Mm. So that's interesting. So, so you actually, the experience when you're on placement, when you're doing your work experience or you, mm-hmm. you, you actually found that resonated with you a bit more, a fair bit more than actual the physical health rehabilitation? So one of the things that I noticed in particular, one is I resonated with people and, and, and just I really connect with people and I'm happy to meet them where they're at, which is what people want. And people want to be heard and listened to. It turned out I'm not too bad at that. In physical rehab, I noticed there were things like you have 21 days to have this person recovered from stroke. If you can't help them to get to a certain level of functioning within 21 days, then they go into a nursing home. So those sorts of things meant that people weren't able to get their, people weren't able to connect with me in that way. And so I remember working with a lady who'd had a stroke And I worked with her for seven weeks because she and her husband really wanted to be at home. And so I kept working with them, but I got really bad feedback from my supervisors because what I should have done was have ascertained earlier that she had such serious injuries that I should have talked to them about going into more permanent care. And that didn't sit well with me. Yeah. Hmm. It's good that you're true to yourself and what you, like you chased chased your passion, like it's, it's good that you just didn't shoot for the sake of it, but the flexibility to change what you were doing and follow the path that seemed to resonate with you internally, which clearly has worked out well for you. But mm. tell me about OT and how you've seen that change over the years and the role that they play. Have you had a bit much, have much to do with that and seen much of a difference in, in that space? So when I first graduated as an occupational therapist, I headed out into mental health and I was the only OT in that service at the time. Is that right? Yes. There had been a few more OTs prior to me being there, but a number of them had left the service. 
and that had a lot of trouble recruiting. It was very heavily nursing dominated at the time. And a lot of people used to call me nurse, even though I wasn't one. People didn't really know how to differentiate what I did. So I've become a very big advocate of occupational therapy because I think that we bring a really different perspective to mental health. We talk about a person being a holistic person, that they're important, that they're valuable, that they contribute to our society. And we as OTs believe that we should create, we know principles of what works in terms of treatment, but we should meet the person where they're at and be flexible in our approach to be able to help them to recover. And that's what I love about occupational therapy. I think that occupational therapy's grown a lot. Certainly in the service where I used to work, I ended up managing a team there. A quarter of my team were occupational therapists in the end. So there was a really big shift Uh, There are more universities now that offer occupational therapy. Back when I first studied, there were very few. Uh, So there are more training opportunities now. Their their role is more utilised. And I'm really biased, Sam. I'm happy to put that out on the table. I think OT is the best profession of them all. (laughs) Yes. It's great to hear that. And the fact that now that there's more opportunities for people to study, it is a fantastic thing. Mm. Would you like to see more people that specialise in this in the mental health space to, to be out there doing this in the OT space? Always, always. When I did my undergraduate degree and graduated 24 years ago, my honours thesis at the time was on why do people choose where they go? One of the things we know is people choose mental health and intellectual disability less than they do some of the more attractive you know, people want to go into pediatrics because the babies are gorgeous and they want to go in <laughs> like, like me in a lot of ways. Oh, I want to do neuro. You know, that's great. You know, medicine, you're in there with the surgeons and, and the, the specialist teams. Mental health isn't always a popular choice. I think that it's more than it used to be. It is much more wide acceptable. But I think people, people are more likely to go into the profession when they've ex- had a positive experience. And so I hope that when I work with people, they get a positive experience of what it can be like to work with a range of people and help them achieve whatever life they want to have. I've seen amazing things happen and, and people do incredible things with their mental health when, when they're helped appropriately with their mental health. Has your mental health always been, have you always had it dialed in? Have you always felt like that you've been in control of it and your needs the things that you know keep you mentally healthy? Are things that have come naturally to you? No. As I mentioned, my childhood was very much about work ethic and work hard, and that's exactly what I did. I worked in the public mental health sector for 17 and a half years, worked into a management role. I worked long, long hours. I was very dedicated. We got great outcomes, but I worked harder. I worked longer. And I learned the hard way that if I don't look after my own mental health, then I I can hit the wall same as everyone else. The other thing that really impacted me now when I reflect back on it is being the leader of some of the teams. I didn't think that people would also follow my lead. So I do feel that I didn't set a good example as a leader for clinical staff and people that I was leading as a team to encourage them to look after their mental health either. So we had high staff turnover, we had people really exhausted and stretched and stressed, 
And I think that still exists in the system. I think we still have issues like that. And I think sometimes that's perpetuated because we feel like, but we're the ones who are meant to be in charge. We're the ones that are meant to be looking after other people's mental health. I don't have time to worry about me. The team that I worked with were amazing staff. Like they worked really hard. They were dedicated. But there was, there's a lot of work in the field and I just we just kept working and didn't think about how to look after ourselves. And so at what point did you see the opportunity to really start trying to dial it in for yourself and try to concentrate and, and really have that holistic approach to yourself instead of working longer is better? How did you come about that solution? Well, one weekend when things were pretty stressful at work, I made a decision to drive up to where my grandparents' farm was and just be up on the land and walk through the paddocks and went up and climbed up to Mackey's Peak in the Grampians where I used to go with my pa. And I was sitting up the top of that mountain thinking, this isn't, this isn't what I want. Like, I, I never get to do this. I love bushwalking. I love being outdoors. I'm working all the time. I, this has got to change. And so I resigned from my management position at the hospital without a plan, which is not like me. I am a, I am a planner. So to do that was a big thing. And as I gave myself a, a few months to think about what I wanted to do, I decided to, to start my own practice and to work in a way that I thought would be helpful. But I had an extra kicker along the way, Sam. I thought, I've taken a break. I've had a few months and tried to rest. I went and saw my GP and I said, I don't understand. I've, I've left the stressful job because I talked to my GP. I've, I've left the stressful job. I'm trying to build a more balanced lifestyle. I'm not feeling right. Something's wrong. And my GP kept saying, oh, you're just anxious. You're just anxious. I said, I can't just be anxious. I've worked in mental health for a couple of decades. If I can't manage my own anxiety, I said, it's not that. There's something not right. After six months and a few medical tests later, I was referred to a cardiologist. And I headed off and didn't think much about it. And I sat in his office and I said about, and I've had these tests. And he had a look at the tests and I was immediately admitted to hospital and I had emergency heart surgery. And I now live with a pacemaker. So I've, mm, so I've had a pacemaker for six years now. Turns out I had a heart block, which means my heart stops working periodically. Now, doctors say they don't know why. There's no family history. There's no, I, I don't smoke. I don't have any of the risk factors. One could question whether all of that stressful work made a difference. I don't know. The doctors don't say that it's related to that crosses my mind once in a while. Did I really work myself? Yeah, lucky you went into a check. Mm, very lucky. The cardiologist actually, it was ironic because the GP had said to me, maybe try getting fit. I'd never run in my life. Hiking, yes. Running, no. But I took up running. <laughs> and I, oh, I hate it. I, I don't find running easy or pleasurable at all, Sam. But I did run a half marathon at Uluru. Oh, it was amazing, which was great. But when I saw the cardiologist, he was stunned that I'd been able to do these runs. And I said, I didn't enjoy them. They were awful. I felt terrible. And he said, I'm not surprised. Your heart was failing you the whole time. He said, at any moment, 
you could have collapsed. He said, I can't believe that you did those runs. <laughs> so my efforts to try and get fit, yeah. it's so great. That's interesting. <laughs> so, so you had those. So as far as your health is, you're, you're good now. Well, your heart's okay, the pacemaker's doing its job. The pacemaker's doing its job. So I am I am pacemaker dependent now. So that means my heart does not function well enough without a pacemaker. So fully pacemaker dependent. But we, yes, thankfully, the pacemaker does what it's meant to. Tell me, how have you seen, where did you see the opportunity to go in and start your own your own thing? Like, how did that come about? Is it something you always wanted to do or are you... A frustration grew one day and just, you know what, if it has to be, it's up to me and I'm going to do this. Like, how did it work out? Pretty much like that. I had always been very committed to the public mental health system and really wanted to work in that system. And I'd, I'd seen people come in and get burnt out and leave. I'd trained more staff than you could possibly imagine because being a rural service, staff would come, they'd get great training, but then they'd go off to much more exciting positions in Melbourne or overseas or wherever. But I had always thought that I would be one of those people that would be dedicated to public mental health. But when I was just so exhausted and just didn't know how to keep going, I had to rethink. And I thought, well, I love working with clients. I love doing what I'm doing. If I start my own business... I can take all of that amazing training that I have and all of that amazing experience that I have and things that I know that work and I can create my own private practice service and that I have control over. I don't have control over the public mental health system. I did my best, but at least in my own, in my own business, I have control over how I work with clients. I can ensure that it's of a standard that I'm happy to give I guess when I talk about standard, for me, I've always believed that I should provide a service that I would be happy for my mother, sister, father, brother, child to be willing to go to. I, I, I believe that I'm a bit of a, it's got to be <laughs> the best that it can be. And I, I strive for that kind of excellence. So, so what, at what point in the 24 years, sorry, last week, did you start the business? Six years ago. Okay. Yep. About 2016, yep. you were, uh, said, you know what, this is it. I'm going to have a go. So mm. tell our listeners about what you're up to now and what the focus is and what you're up to. Sure. The focus now is shifting a little bit for me. I want to create mental health change. I can see clients one-on-one -on -one and I see them overcome and do amazing things. So I have seen a whole bunch of, of tradies who are running their own businesses who are finding it really stressful to, to run their own business and to employ staff and to manage apprentices and helped them to understand their mental health and, and apply those things to run their business. I've seen lawyers who are struggling with mergers and challenging situations to understand why they're perhaps yelling at their assistant. And I've school principals grapple with how do I manage leadership teams to look after thousands of kids. And I've had a few clients say to me along the line, everybody should know this information, Julie. So I thought I'd write a book. <laughs> so that's what I've done in the last 12 months. I wrote The Mentally Fit Leader. Yeah, so this book was only, it's only not even a year old. Correct. Released only a few months ago. Who's it for? Who's it for? It was written for people in leadership. 
So it was written for people in senior leadership who have decision-making capacity over others, but for people in leadership who recognise that they're perhaps stretched, exhausted, tired, but not willing to go and get help because they're the leader. So I, I remember being in that position, being tired and exhausted. I wasn't going to go and see somebody. I had too much to do. And so I wanted to write a book so that leaders, CEOs of companies and people who perhaps don't have good understanding of mental health, not necessarily, I mean, people in the mental health sector can certainly get benefit from it, but there are people in lots and lots of industries. There's a few studies one came out and said that 49% of CEOs are reporting levels of stress, depression, and anxiety. One in four of them say, since going into leadership, they're not, they can't, don't feel they can ask for help anymore. And do you think that, you think that it's about trying to prioritize, I mean, people know what it takes to get physically fit, I guess, mm. but mentally fit's a bit different. And you feel like putting a structure around that and trying to condense that into a book where people can get tools hmm. that they can pull out and use as they go through their career in leadership role is the most effective way to get some cut through and get some early easy runs on the board to reach people quicker. Absolutely. And I think I one of the things I'm really mindful of is people who are CEOs and in senior leadership, they're really skilled at what they do, Sam. They don't get to those positions without really good skills. They might be exceptional in the field of finance or they might know everything there is to know about IT. Or like They're amazingly skilled at what they do, but they may not be amazingly skilled in understanding their mental health and in understanding how their mental health could impact their performance and productivity. So if you're not at your best mentally, you can make some really big strategic decisions that can really impact your company it can impact finances, and it can impact the people that you're employing. So there's a lot of research about absenteeism. So, you know, in workplaces, presentism. So people are at work, but they're not working very effectively. And a lot of programs put their resources, and rightly so, into employee mental health. And don't get me wrong, I agree. We absolutely should be doing that. But our leaders model from the top, and I know with my team, I always, I, I had a lovely sunroom where there was plenty of tables for people to have lunch. I encouraged people to have lunch. I talked to them about work-life balance. I did all of those things, but my team watched me. Did I stop and have lunch? No, lots of the time I didn't. Did I actually model how I wanted them to work? No. And so therefore, it, it, it doesn't ripple on. People look and go, well, actually, clearly what Julie wants is for me to work harder. Yeah. And also I got to make decisions about rostering and how many hours people worked and what shifts people did. And you know, as the leader, I have, I have impact on those things. Do I create a roster? Do I create a work environment that gives employees the space to be able to look after their mental health so that when they are at work, I have their best performance. Is this, does this flow into the concept of the fireplace? Is that where the book was written based off or is that is that the mind and soul, that, that, that part of the business side of things as well? So the fire plan is, ab is in the book. Yep. So the book starts by talking about the, the cost of not looking after our own mental health and then why we should invest in it. 
So a trillion dollars a year is lost due to mental health in the world. What we know is if you invest $1, you'll get $4 in return. So it is very much worth our investment. The middle section of the book goes through 12 practical strategies, looking at the three waves of behavior therapy and taking the evidence from that, but turning them into practical strategies that people can apply in their everyday lives. Then in the the concluding parts of the book, it does talk about the mental health fire plan because it's great to have a goal, but a goal without a plan is just a wish. So the mental health fire plan helps people to think about we need to do things to prepare. So in, in the same way we prepare for a fire, you know, we clean out the gutters, we keep the lawns mowed, you know, we prepare for a fire. We need to do that for our mental health. So that can be getting a good night's sleep, keeping a gratitude journal, focusing on what's within our control and doing those things on a daily basis so that we're well prepared that in the event that there is some, a crisis, we're already in a good place to manage it. We're not on the back foot. And the reason I use fire as an example is Australians are really familiar with a fire. If you don't prepare for a bushfire, it will wreak havoc and ravage the land. But like our Indigenous community, they do cool burns, they, they keep the land well prepared. You know, people in, the, in regional Victoria have fire plans. They know what to do to keep their property well prepared. So in the event of a fire, you're better prepared to reduce damage and to keep our community safe. The second part of the plan looks at ACT. So with, when we look at ACT, much like a fire plan, it's a high fire danger day. So people know we need to keep the radio on, we need to keep an ear out for, for the local announcements, we might need to have our bag packed and have in the car. When I was a kid, it was you had to have your denim jeans and your woolen jumper on so that you could protect yourself from fire. So we do those things when we act. We can have high stress times in our life where we perhaps need to increase the mental health strategies we're using to get through that. For example, getting up to publicly speak can be a high stress time. So we might do things like sit quietly for a moment, make sure we've got a glass of water, go over our notes, remind us of the things we're good at. We, we take specific steps so that we go into that stressful situation with a chance of doing well. Survive, when it comes to fire, is knowing where to go for help. So for survive, it's, you know, when you have to leave, you know how to contact the CFA. When it comes to mental health, it's what resources can you connect in with? Is it your GP for a mental health care plan? Is it, actually, I don't want to talk to a person, but I'm happy to get onto an online chat through Lifeline or Beyond Blue. There may be another service in your town that you know. What I do know is that once the fire's there, it's too late to decide what to do. That's why we plan beforehand. I feel like it should be the same with our mental health. Why wait until the crisis is imminent and then go, gosh, where do I go? We should decide that when we're calm. Do you, uh, do you see this, so for leaders that are, for people that are in a leadership position in any business mm-hmm. any level, I assume. Yep. So it's number one, bringing about awareness to their own mental health and the cost of that if they don't look after it. Yes. Number two, gives them tools on how to cope or how to treat, not treat, how to prevent. Yeah, so it's about being mentally fit. Mentally fit. Right. Yep, yep. Okay. 
And example, some examples of that were things such as meditation, sleep. Yeah, focusing on what's within your control. Yes. Letting go of what's not in your control. Thinking about how you organize your routine in the day. So, for example, if you know your best thinking is done in the morning, that's when you should do your strategic thinking. You shouldn't be doing your strategic thinking at four o'clock in the afternoon if that's not the optimal time for you. So there's all of those yeah. sorts of strategies. Does it also bring awareness for the leader to look after the mental health of the people in the, in the organisation as well? I guess indirectly mm -hmm. it, it might anyway. But is that something that, that the book also touches on is looking at for others in the organisation? Absolutely. So after going through how to do your own mental health fire plan, the next chapter is on how you create that ripple effect in your organisation. Yep. So that ripple effect talks about how you set a good example for others, that you then create an environment so that others can be mentally fit and that you then can create that culture in the workplace so that it infiltrates everybody's practices. How do you think we're going at the moment with where things are at with mental health in the workplace and the prevention side of it, which is what this tool is? Yep. Right? Yep. Do you think we're on the path to compared to what it was like 24 years ago? Do you feel like we're, we're coming a bit of the way or we're a long way off where we need to be with this? Where do you think we're at? I think we've come a really long way. There's a lot more programs around and there's a lot of great resources available. There's probably two things that stand out in my mind that we still need to get better at though, Sam. One is a lot of the programs talk about looking out for others, which is important. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, things like mental health first aid and are you okay day, they're great programs and we need them. But sometimes I think that we can forget that we're looking out for others' mental health, but we also need to stop and think about our own. And I think that sometimes that can perpetuate that other people have mental health issues, but not me. And I'm a big believer in actually mental health affects everyone. I kind of don't like the there are those who need mental health help and those who don't. I think that if we can do anything towards changing the mental health landscape, it's recognizing that mental health is something every single living human being needs to focus on instead of waiting to a crisis point. You know, when, when we went to school, we learned things like the healthy food pyramid. We knew eat less at the top, eat more at the bottom. We know to eat fresh fruit and veg. That was taught at school. We were taught about needing to be active to, you know, if you don't move it, you lose it. But I never learned at school, what do I do with those negative thoughts? about myself? How do I change my negative thinking? How do I look at evidence for my thoughts and restructure that into something that's more helpful? How do I learn how to manage those really big emotions when they overwhelm me? I never learned that emotion is like a wave and that the wave will pass and how to ride that emotion, how to breathe to keep my thinking brain on, how to use sensory modulation, so sensory strategies that can be calming. I didn't learn any of that at school. I've learned that all through my career. And I come across lots and lots of people, like I say, everyday people who are tradies, teachers, lawyers, everyday people who go, why did nobody teach us this at school? And this challenge has existed forever. Correct. I guess we're just, with the study, the evidence-based approach, the research, we're getting more, more data on this. Mm -hmm. But then we're probably seeing also more people going out and working for themselves and we're in an era now where it's yeah. easy to start a business from home or do do something 
Yes. So, so there's probably a really good opportunity, and it's quite timely for this to be really mm. at the forefront. Would that be Would that be right? I think so. I think so. I think mental health is now able to be talked about openly. I think you know we're seeing it much more. It, it's in media. It's in TV programs. Celebrities more open about talking about their their experience. So I think that people are going into their own business in an attempt to try and get that work-life balance. And, but they may need a little more help with understanding the strategies and how to go about it. But I think that's what people are trying to do. People are, are going, you know, this isn't working for me. I need to do something different, which is great. But knowledge, knowledge is needed as well to help them make good decisions about that. Because going into your own business can be beneficial in terms of your work hours, and that's often why people choose it. But I know a lot of people in my town, I provide some supervision to some of them and they talk about um, being overwhelmed because they now have the pressure of they've still got a mortgage to pay. So you've got to get income coming in. They're now having to do their own accounts and their own, you know, that there's no HR department. So they bring, whilst it can be beneficial in helping you make different lifestyle choices, it can bring new stresses if you don't learn how to manage those. That's a good point. If you wouldn't mind, do you just want to tell listeners a little bit about Healthy Mind and Soul? Mm -hmm. What the organisation does and what services you provide? Sure. So Healthy Mind and Soul is a mental health and wellbeing practice located in Ballarat. And we've provided a number of services. So we provide services under NDIS, mental health care plans, private clients. But we're moving much more into working with organisations and leadership teams. And that's really where we're headed because I think that if we work with leaders, then they can change the mental health landscape for more people. So I work with people in leadership. I provide consultation supervision type sessions to help work with them coaching one-on-one to not only manage their mental health, but to look at how they lead in their organization to have a mentally healthy culture. I work with leadership teams where the team come together and we talk about the challenges in being in leadership how to manage their stresses, and how to create that flow-on effect for them to support their broader staff group. So if people are interested in working yeah. with Healthy Mind and Soul, they can buy the book. If, yeah, sure. They can, they can buy the book, which is available on Audible, Kindle, Amazon, softcover, hardcover. And whilst we have our Healthy Mind and Soul website, there is a new website, juliereouse.com.au. Oh, wow, mm, that has the book and how people can get in touch with me. So people can connect with me on LinkedIn. We have a Healthy Mind and Soul Facebook page and people can email me on julie at juliereouse.com.au. That's awesome. How did you get that domain? That's, that's great. <laughs> I don't know, not to my own name, but so that makes it easy for people to get in touch. Hopefully, uh, hopefully. The book, there's consultations. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, the priority at the moment is getting out there and trying to embed mentally healthy fit, a mentally fit framework into mm-hmm. leadership positions of people and organizations. Correct. So that it prevents them from being mental, uh, experiencing mental ill health. Correct. Themselves. Correct. That's amazing. Um, as you look to the future, what what's the most exciting thing for you? I mean, is there another book coming up? Are you what what other exciting projects do you have coming up? Yes, I have the I have the the bones for the next book, Sam. The book. 
I've got the book bug. Yes, cool. yes. So this book is talking about the mentally fit leader. The next, so I, I'm hoping to make this a series. The next book, I'm certainly wanting to look much more about what makes a mentally fit employer. So much more about how that that leader uses their influence in their organization to create an amazing staff group and, and, and using mentally fit principles to do that. Does that also look at culture of organizations? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wow, that'd be awesome. Yes. So give me another year, Sam. Yeah, yeah, no. I wouldn't know, of course. What an effort. The book looks great. So check it out if you can. Julie, I think it's been really cool to talk to you about this and the amazing work you're up to. And what a great initiative. Congratulations on being in in business for yourself and taking some control Hmm. over your uh, destiny, but also getting out there and making things happen instead of waiting for things to happen. So congratulations on that. And yeah, thanks very much for spending some time with me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate the conversation. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.